It's been a while since we had an episode about things. We are spacing things, so I think it's time we fix that. Yeah, today we're going to talk about games with board game designer Fritz Bronner. He even created a computer game in the 90s with Buzz Aldrin. Please keep letting us know your thoughts via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram, Threads, and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash Space and Things. But right now, enjoy episode 159 of the Space and Things Podcast. You are listening to the Space and Things Podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 159 of our podcast. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing great. How are you, Dave? Not too bad, not too bad. Keeping busy. Hey, Emily. Have you ever played a space board game before? I have not. I've played a few space computer games, but not a space board game. Well, this will be interesting. There's a great game about Mars terraforming, which I know a few people would have played. And there's a, I think there's an Apollo game as well somewhere out there. Um, but I haven't played that one. Anyway, so that, that does lead us on to this week's main feature. A new board game called Liftoff 2.0 is hopefully going to be released in the next 12 months. On the website, it says it's the definitive epic space race board game simulation that offers high-level tension during space missions. It's an update to Liftoff Race to the Moon, which was released in 1989, and a computer game, Buzz Aldrin's Race to Space, which came out in 1994. And today we speak to the designer of that game, Fritz Bronner. Fritz has been designing games since the early 1980s. He co-founded two game companies developing and producing many high-profile games, including the Madeline series, Tonka Truck Construction, Virtual Springfield, Animaniacs, The Flintstones, The Neverhood, and was a senior producer at Disney, which included numerous games, Snow White, Piglet, Goofy, and Kingdom Hearts which is really cool. So let's talk to Fritz. Bringing you a new episode every Thursday since September 2020. This is Space and Things. Thank you for joining us, Fritz. So first, let's just start at the beginning. What made you a space enthusiast? You know, was it Apollo 11, which you depicted in your games? Or was it something before or even after that? Uh, it goes way back. Uh, I think it was when I was four years old. I, my father was in advertising and I don't know if it was a promotion device. I looked for this item on the internet. I've never found one. So maybe it was a one-off, but it was a scale child scale mercury capsule. Oh, wow. It was made out of cardboard, but corrugated looking with all the metal textures on the outside. And it had, it was a fire trap of electronics inside that had buzzers and lights and everything. And I just, I was watching that with the, uh, I think it was the Gemini launches going on at the time and could not get enough. It might've been one of the one, last one or two Mercury uh, missions. And I, I was hooked. And I have to say the other big impact, January 27th, 1967, I was at Cape. No way. That day I was there. Um, never forget it. Um, we were on the tour. I was part of the Cub Scouts and our, it was a Friday and our troop was going to go there Saturday. And my mother took me and we thought, why don't we go a day before? And then we can, you can see all the stuff and you'll have distractions and then you can go with your friends. And we were there that Friday. And then when I got home, we got the news. And I think that was a huge, uh, impact as well. 
Wow. Um, ever since then, I've had a fascination and kind of it's just in my blood. Wow. So you were basically living history that day. That's incredible. So, all right. So moving to our next question. In 1989, you came up with, or you probably came up with it before then, but it was published in 1989, uh, the first version of Liftoff, which is a board game that allows its players to make decisions which lead up to the first crude moon landing. So tell us a bit about the game's development. You know, how long did it take from thinking, wow, that sounds like a neat idea to the game being physically available? And what kind of challenges did you encounter along the way? I was watching a launch, I guess, in 1983 and on TV over at a friend's house. And I was playing a lot of uh, a game called Traveler, which is a role-playing game. And there's statistical odds. It's a hard science fiction role-playing game. And I was looking at the launch. I said, well, there's got to be statistical odds on that type of rocket and its performance capabilities. So I, I thought, well, I'm going to give it about 87. I looked it up or somehow I got information on it because I had my alma mat book with me or something like that. Uh, and I said, I'll give it 87%. And I rolled percentiles. And I was like, well, it's good. What's next? And I and then we watched the launch and it was like, and a friend was watching it too. Steve Stipp, who was the uh, one of the artists for that, he became one of the artists for the liftoff game. And we were like really intrigued by that. And then I said, well, what's next? What's the next major sequence in this? It would be orbital insertion burn. I, there's mm. separations and things like that, but we wanted to keep it simple. Uh, okay, well, what's performing that? That's the ro- upper stage rockets. Okay, we'll roll that. What are the percentages? So we started to realize hey, there's statistical data and we could correlate this with hardware. And we thought that was really neat. And then, of course, the satellite powered on and was operating. It reached orbit. And so that was a successful mission. And we thought, wow, I, I, I was feeding off on him. And I said, I think there's really something here. And so quickly I scurried and started getting little pieces of paper and we got capsules and astronauts and spacesuits and Suddenly, it had more investment when you started putting uh, a human on board and you realize, oh, gosh, I don't want to fail this. So we were giving all the final polished reliability percentages of safety factor, what these performances, but we realized part of the journey is developing this hardware. And then we realized you can select different hardware and there's different options. And so very quickly, I realized oh my gosh, there is a very, very interesting game. And then I realized, well, we could do this with the Soviets and that's an interesting concept. And then I wanted to expand it to a four-player game. And it took me about five years. I was uh, commuting back and forth from uh, Miami to New York. And on my weekends, that's what I was doing in New York City. Quickly, I, I had a prototype and then I shopped around and I had some interest from some games on the East coast. I relocated to Los Angeles and I was fortunate to find in my backyard, a very good game publisher in its day, which was a task force games at times and took it over there and did a play session with them. And they were absolutely uh, enjoying it. And it, it became published as far as that goes. So it came out in uh, 1989. Awesome. In 1993, uh, you did develop Buzz Aldrin's Race into Space, which is a kind of computerized version of Liftoff. So what kind of input did Aldrin have into this game? And tell us a little bit more about NASA's and Apollo astronauts' input into your games. Well, 
Buzz initially, I think when we, I, I, I'm the one that suggested, I said, I think Buzz would be really great to get involved in this. Uh, it would be an opportunity to get his own personal views and uh, insight, especially when I was trying to develop, there's a, a book called the Failure Mode book or the Doomsday book. And it has every major mission step that's man or unmanned for every type of uh, mission profile for every step and what are the potential failures that come out of it from minor to catastrophic failure. And I was just always wanting to get more grit and information. And so he was helpful in getting me linkage to other archives. And also he was very insightful when I spent time with him on his perception of the landing as well. We had some PR time as well, because we, we did a second version. We did the floppy disk, which I think was like 16 hard 3.5 discs. <laughs> and then we went to the CD-ROM. And the great thing about the computer game then is we were the first with a 45-piece orchestra score in it and everything else. Wow. But we filled it up with a lot of uh, mini animation footage, actual real footage from U.S. missions as well as you know from NASA. And the Soviets as well. And then the hardware that we didn't have a lot of information, we had to, we're always, we were always looking for data. What does it look like? What is this angle? Because every step of every type of hardware up, every conceivable mission is listed. And by the way, that game is in shareware now. It's totally free. It's called Race into Space. And a gentleman uh, named Leon, he's taken the lead on that with several other programmers as well that had been updating it and tweaking it and it's out there on shareware and it's still being played i think it has over a hundred thousand downloads it's a, wow. a very gritty exciting tense nail biting when you run these missions because uh a lot of gamers have said this is the one space game that you have the human element that adds so much tension and risk and reward to it that makes that stands it makes it stand out as far as that goes. And originally, it was in its own category. Since then, there has been some wonderful games on space as well, which I think have all led to expand the interest and the knowledge of space exploration. And they've done beautifully well. There's been many, a young person who played the board game and the original computer game. I, I found them on their blogs. They, they say, how did I become an aerospace engineer? Or how I became a test pilot? They played the game. I graduated from high school in the, in 96. And I swear that was something we had back then. Because I remember we were playing a space game where you had to make decisions about. And I'm like, that was the game. <laughs> it's unbelievable. There, yeah. It is still. I have met teachers that are still using it with crosstown rivals. One whole high school. Uh, I think it's in Michigan. I, I was getting recently. I was at a convention and they were telling me that uh, one school was playing the Americans and others playing Soviets <laughs> and the communications between the two teachers. And they play this over several weeks and they get the news. Well, the Soviets just launched a man in space <laughs> and the classroom just groans because they're trying to beat the other class out there over there in the county over there. And they do this every year. And uh, it's quite exciting. And it's quite rewarding to see this. What I think is invaluable for young and olds that teaches Short-term goals and long-term goals. Uh, you look at a complex goal and you break it down into many steps. Uh, many little steps 
get you to the promised land as far as that goes. And it, it teaches that. It's the most exuberating, exhilarating highs and lows of running a mission uh, because you can have uh, the ultimate joy and the despondent despair if you have a fail, which just reflects real life as well as far as what we're trying to accomplish in our space exploration. The other thing too was astronaut skills. Buzz gave me some input. Another researcher, actually author and screenwriter, Mike Kasuit, who's done a lot of who's who of cosmonauts, and uh, but he also knew a lot of astronauts as well. And I've met other astronauts. I'd always ask, yeah, hey, rate the other guys on their pilot skills or capsule pilot skills, or who do you think's a better LEM pilot? And because in this new version in the computer game also, but I've revised all the data, the 2.0. There's capsule pilot skills, there's LEM pilot skills, there's EVA, there's docking skills, and there's endurance. Those all have factors when you need a astronaut intervention, we'll call it a saving throw, but where the astronaut skill set, and you, you actually assign them by their skills to the seat on the mission. So mm. if it's a three-man capsule uh, mission, you've got the, uh, the commander of the, uh, the commander, you have the, uh, capsule pilot, you have the LEM pilot and their, and their skill sets. And if there's an EVA in space or if there's EVAs on, on the moon, uh, all those skills come into uh, value uh, if there's a failure on that step. And then it's their skill sets that are going to overcome it and their experience by prior missions too. So I, I got a lot of insight. I don't want anybody taking it personally. You know, some of the, you know, some of the astronauts, you know, why, why does somebody have a three? It's, the highest skill you can get is a four on a, on a pilot skill or a LEM pilot skill. And if I was putting myself in there, I would be minus 10 or, you know, in, in this skill set of, of values. So these guys are all top, top pilots and, and very experienced technicians and, 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 and have incredible skill sets in, as far as comparison to the regular public. But I did have to separate them so that we have a little bit of variance. And there always was a lot of, um, friendly competition, let's just say, between the individuals and the crews uh, as far as vying for missions. And so it was a it was a competitive nature for the Soviets as well. And I did talk to Buzz a lot about about what he had heard about the Soviets and what was going on and, and Intel. So that they were always aware and they were aware they were getting briefings on that. And a lot of that's come out since then too, which is really neat to see the the confirmation of that. Uh, back in eighty five to 89, when the board game was coming out, we had on the Soviet hardware, four different kinds of designations of the name of a type of rocket. The N1 was called the G1 and, and it had other designations too. It was rather confusing at first too. I even actually visited the Soviet embassy in New York, uh, <laughs> which was an interesting experience behind a 16, I don't know, 12 foot, one ton, five inch steel door that just mechanically clicks when you walk in and you're on sovereign territory at that point. And I'm sure I was being listened to by both sides. And I was asking for more space literature because I was always hungry because I was reading every bit of James Oberg back in its day because he was the Soviet watcher and, and, and author of Soviet space at the time. And he started the, all that. And it was uh, the... I guess the diplomat, he kept saying, oh, space peace proposals you want. I said, no, no, your space moon program. Space peace proposals you mean. 
And <laughs> I said, yeah, finally, I gave up. I said, sure, give me whatever you have. I'll, I'll take whatever literature you have, English or Russian, I'll take. And, and I got some booklets and I scurried out. And anyway, I was always one who was trying to go into the library, going, writing letters to our intelligence agencies. What information we have? When can we get this? Is it declassified? Can I have information on this? And uh, all the Senate reports that were public domain information, trying to get insight on that. Uh, what did we know when and things? Because there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of technology theft in this or, or calculations on, in the game, in the computer game especially, but even in the board game too. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of observing and guessing what your opposition is trying to do as far as reaching. So now you're releasing Liftoff 2.0, which is an updated version of the 1989 board game. So tell us about some of the updates and how the game has been enriched for like a, a new generation of space enthusiasts. Liftoff 2.0 is a major, major redesign of everything from I, I couldn't put in and, or I wanted to change from the 89 version of the board game, which by today's standards looks like some kind of Eastern Soviet printing standard of coarse cardboard or something, <laughs> and it just primitive printing. So visually, but also data and also streamlined mechanics and new mechanics as well, but still has the same principle methodolo met methodology of it. It's a uh, crisis resource space technology management simulation. Uh, and by crisis, it, it's nail-biting, covering the Cold War space race to the moon. The classic game is to land safely and return your astronauts back first, winning that race. Uh, there are other scenarios I've added since then, and there's other mini-games to play a shorter version, also as a basic teaching game for first satellite. It's a 30-minute game to getting a man in space at the time. We follow history. We actually have uh, the historical names along with skills, and we have the hardware and new proposed hardware that didn't get to fly or was considered like the Nova rocket, a lot of uh, Gemini or Gemini. I know that's an ongoing rivalry here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, expanded, the blue Gemini, Gemini, uh, mole, uh, <laughs> X20, X24. So you, you can develop programs and because this is a simulation, maybe the circumstances are slightly different in this situation. And there may be advantageous regions, reasons to develop the N1, I mean, the Nova rocket, uh, and do yeah. a direct descent in this game it, a lot there's a lot of study and and it still favors the historical result the way this comes out usually of doing a lunar orbital rendezvous so i just realized with all the old data i needed to flex and massage all the data numbers to set this up so that it incorporates all these other expansions in different tech eras to expand all the way to today and beyond so that it the mechanics work well with a SpaceX Dragon mission to an ISS to going to Mars and even doing beyond the Jovian uh, explorations as well, oh, wow. manned or unmanned. Uh, there was a very interesting uh, mathematical concept proposal called HOPE, which is human 
Outer Planet Exploration Project. And that was a 12-year mission. I think it's to Titan uh, as far as a mission and using a nuclear power uh, propulsion system and getting there. So I wanted to make sure the data sets would all blend well and fit in all the cogs and everything as far as the concepts this goes. Without, and this sounds like, wow, this covers a lot, but I'm trying to keep this as a medium difficulty playability, which the game on Board Game Geek, the original game was uh, just below a three on a one to five difficulty factor. Uh, this one I figure is, and I'm getting feedback, is about a 3.25 on a one to five scale of difficulty. Board games have gone through an incredible renaissance through crowdfunding. Yeah, is that is that what you're doing with this game? Is it is it crowdfunded? It's going to be crowdfunded, yes. And uh, we're hoping that we can reach our, our goals and hopefully get uh, some extra stretch goals there to set us on a course to hopefully then be able to develop expansions to that as well, which I've I'm, I'm embarrassed to say because of the, the lag we had, you know, the downtime over the last few years, I developed probably 90% of all the expansions already. Oh, <laughs> so wow. They're pretty well fleshed out. <laughs> That's good. So, <laughs> so how, how can people get involved with this then? Is, that, is there already a way? Uh, yes. We're, well, we're on X now. Uh, you can look us up on X slash Twitter. And we're on uh, Facebook. Uh, if you look up Liftoff 2.0 or Liftoff 2, and we have a website, liftoff2.com, and we have a website there for sign-up as far as that goes. The interesting thing is, is you're finessing technology and deciding when you want to human rate a system, a rocket, or a capsule. And this is what makes it very, very interesting and very, very realistic. You decide as the director of your country's space program when you think this rocket and this spacecraft is ready after even test flights to send humans. But the problem is, is the pressure is there's so much political pressure that you need to be first. And that's mm. what's driving you. And it's a very interesting human dynamic, dynamic that because there's so much negative prestige if you're not first. <laughs> and so it's, it's an interesting human dimension playing this uh, simulation. And you, you have to mi minimize your risks, but there's always going to be risk, as there is in real space too. And I think what's interesting about this game now is that players today with a new game will learn how to design mission profiles for going to the moon because there's a ton of ways to go to the moon. And I discovered this when I expand this, I have with the expansions up to 46 different ways of going to the moon with different hardware wow. combinations. Wow. <laughs> and to Mars, I examined so many different Mars proposals. There's about 85 that you would call legitimate proposals. And there's probably 35 that were very, very viable, uh, different profiles. One of my favorite ones, I think from an engineering standpoint, is perfection, but it's one of the most dangerous ones, is that it's a uh, small chemical mission burn, and the landing craft, one-third away from Mars, takes off from the mother craft and goes to Mars and lands on Mars and stays there for four or five days. The mother craft does not go into orbit. It's going to just swing by and do a flyby. You have a window of about two hours to launch to link up 
as that's flying by as an escape velocity to get with that mother craft and come back to Earth. And if you miss it, you miss everything. <laughs> from an engineering standpoint, it's fascinating. But from a human element, it's highly risky. <laughs> yeah. But these are things you can try in this, uh, in this game um, in the, and in the expansions too. So when can we expect the, the, the crowdfunder to start? When can people start giving you money is what I'm asking. <laughs> I am hoping this is going to be in the spring next year. Okay. The spring or early summer. I just want to make sure I've been like combing the hairs of this. I really want to make sure everything, all the data points are right. And at least for the classic revitalized 2.0 game. So that there's a lot of new uh, failure mode chart revisions, which has no and go and no go decision points now, which means as mission director, there's a failure on your orbit, your orbital insertion burn into the moon. The rockets have not fired their, their burn. And there's a negative uh, read on it too, as far as this burn. You have a free flyby return on that. Uh, you can perform an EDA and you can try to do something, or you could just say, no go, let's bring it back. And there'll be, uh, this is a moderate risk. So you as mission director can decide that. And these are all the decisions that walk across today's mission director and tomorrow's mission director. They have to decide these things. Do, and, and, and frankly, if you're going to the moon and now you're just doing a flyby, this is a bit of a failure. You've got to make those decisions. And you're probably going to get some negative prestige for that uh, as far as that goes. And the interesting thing is if there's a catastrophic failure and if you lose lives in this, not only have you lost and had negative prestige in losing certain astronauts or cosmonauts, but you have um, the safety factor of that hardware that failed go back to its original our, uh, safety level, which probably will take you two to three years to return back to flight status uh, safety. So it's going to be a bit of a setback, just like Apollo 1 or Soyuz 1 was. Which, if I'm correct, is, is what, five or six turns on the game? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Which is why you want to have a plan B, uh, right. pretty fast <laughs> up and coming, which is interesting. And you can, all the good information from uh, Mike Mikowski on Gemini, the uh, proposal that McDonnell Douglas came up and said, well, we think we can get to the moon if you really want to consider a backup plan, Gemini Direct. That's in this game. I mean, we have uh, these uh, wow kicker propulsion with the, uh, Propulsive landing legs to land you directly on the moon as well. So uh, it, it, it just gives you so many different flavors of different options. And you'll always be wondering, because you're doing all this in secrecy until the mission comes out, and then everybody suddenly discovers what's going on. Everything is simultaneous play, except now, except the missions, which we're gorging on, Dave, your, your mission right now, and, and I'm probably secretly hoping you fail. <laughs> because I want to beat you. And Emily does not want you to succeed that as either. So she's hoping that she can go. She has the next launch. And Classic Emily. Yes, exactly. I, I want you to. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, anyway, this is an era of very high resolution computer games with insane graphics. Uh, but there's still something to be said. There's still something fun and family style about playing a board game. You know, people still enjoy games like Monopoly, for example. 
So why do you think board games are still a viable activity for friends and families in an era that's just, you know, saturated with technology? Well, I, I had two game company doing software. We did games and I, I, I moved from board games to computer games. And I think what happened was we just became more isolated. We just lost the human contact and even in families. So you're, it's gone through because of crowdfunding. Uh, you suddenly have this renaissance of these creative games on any subject out there as far as growing tulips or, or being a dressmaker or, or, you know, in the 16th century for the court of Louis the 14th to <laughs> automobile industry, you know, game or something like that. It's an incredible, rich, interesting, and, and to have this immediate feedback with humans right in front of you, your family, your friends. If it's cooperative or competitive, there's something about time together, taking a break, having a, a lunch or, or, or snacks and going back to the game, talking about it. There's just nothing more rewarding. And, and especially uh, in places that have diverse climate changes, like, you know, climate with, with harsh winters. I was going to say up in the north, the board gamers, they just sometimes hole up for a whole week in the snow and they just <laughs> yeah. play board games solid. And the stories I get out of that, I, I, you know, it's, it's so rich because playing a computer game, this is the one thing you have an incredible reward moment, but 10 years from now, it's not really a great life experience, but I will say this, a weekend of friends and family playing a board game might be a real lifetime experience of just joy, companionship, and actually developing a passion or interest. And that's the interesting thing about this game is I think it inspires so many people to want to be part of it, especially younger players. This alternate history part, even with the, uh, the series For All Mankind, they show a lot of alternate history. And all these elements that they bring up as far as hardware and everything, and there's a lot of great Soviet stuff that's come out on a couple of books and a couple of websites of some of these alternative proposals it, after the moon landing, the Soviets not only wanted, still wanted to get to the moon, but they had to get more cosmonauts and be there longer to outshine us. And that's what their goal was with bigger rockets, more Soviet cosmonauts, and we stay half a year. And that was their goal. So it's, it's interesting to be able to develop those kinds of programs and can they work? Can you succeed? Can you change history? Can you do better than how we did historically? Yeah. And then you have you have a finesse and you understand in many respects the tools of project management from this too. It's really a lot of fun and uh it it's quite addicting. I go to conventions, there's a lot of uh gamers that had the original game that immediately recognize this and or the computer game and uh they play the prototype and they're very very excited. I've also shown this game to uh most of the manufacturing is in uh, is performed in China for the board game industry, and I show there's a fictional moon race in the night in the Cold War Chinese power, but I use a lot of their technology, and it's sort of an alternate history. And I think the game is going to do very very well in China as well because there's going to be a lot of interesting uh, pride and interest on that. And then there's also a a, uh, a European faction. I think you'll be pleased if you're familiar with uh, the BIS approach to the moon dave um yeah british interplanetary society there's a lot of interesting early aerospace uh there is uh blue streak and uh black knight and black arrow 
and developments nice. on the British early uh, space program that they could have developed, but uh, ran out of funding and support, but had an incredible aerospace industry as far as that goes. Anyway, it's an amalgamation of a lot of uh, alternate European, uh, British, French, and German and Italian technology. And we do reflect a lot of the uh, astronauts that came out or the fighter pilots that came out that were test, that were test pilots of World War II that um, their names are out there too, which you'll, it, it'll thrill the historian side of people to recognize names. There's a lot of hidden Easter eggs like that within the game. Well, this is uh, this sounds amazing. I think this is a game that Emily and I need to sit down and play ourselves. And I can't wait to do that. But Fritz, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it. It's um, it's really quite something what yes, you've done. thank and, you. And then uh, wish you all the best. When the uh, when the crowdfunder starts, let us know and we'll make sure we, we, we set, let people know that it's out there and people can get involved. I'm sure plenty of our listeners would love to play this new version of the game. Oh, I, I, I suspect so. And I certainly will let you know about that. And um, I hope to see you at some point, both of you guys, and we can Absolutely. do a sit down and uh, and play the game. I think you'll uh, you'll greatly enjoy it. That sounds great. Love to do that. Yes, I'm beating both y'all, so just so you know in advance, y'all are get taken down by my space program. I'm taking y'all down with like Jiminy. I'm taking y'all down with like the littlest spacecraft ever. This is awesome. I'm I look forward to that. Thank you so much for being on our show. You bet. Thank you. Past to present, Sputnik to Starship. This is Space and Things. So I love the idea of this game. I love the idea that someone who knows knows nothing about space history can play this game and learn what happened, but also learn what could have happened. And from playing it again and again and again, you get loads of alternative histories and so on and so forth. But you learn about hardware that was proposed or or maybe even existed, and it can open your eyes to the world of spaceflight as you and I know it. I love how much detail he's gone into on this. It's just fascinating for a board game. Exactly. Yeah, I I, I hope this is okay. And our and we talked a little bit after the interview, and he even put the some Soviet propaganda in there. You know, if something goes bad, the Soviets always would you know sort of make up a story to cover it up. Like, oh yeah, we just launched another Cosmos mission. You know, we weren't doing anything, yeah. and that usually meant they tried to launch a rocket and it blew up. <laughs> you know, that's usually what that yeah. meant. Or it didn't, it didn't quite reach orbit or it didn't quite reach where it was supposed to. And then don't worry about that. That's just another Cosmos mission. Yeah. He kind of inserts that into the game as well to illustrate how the, you know, the Soviets were very closed, uh, not just as, you know, a space program, but I think as a, as a society as well. You know, they just didn't want to talk about that. They were very propaganda heavy, whereas the states was a little, you know, we were very open about, you know, our, our successes and unfortunately many of our failures as well and there were a lot of failures back then because they were just trying to figure out where to start so yeah I, I think that's fascinating and i look forward to playing it i'll be honest i am not a computer games person i i my husband plays him or and he watches a lot of gameplay and stuff like um you know mario and kaizo and stuff like that and i think it's a lot of fun but i personally uh i've never been any good at that stuff you know at, at all I think there's something to be said about board games. I remember some of my, you know, most fun memories growing up was me and my sister. We used to play board games and stuff all the time, like Monopoly and things like that. And I do remember in high school playing Buzz Aldrin's uh, 
race to space. I do remember that. We really got into the competitive part of it because I, I was on the good side. I was on the U.S. side, which sounds horrible. But I, I was like, man, I just want to beat the Soviets. Like, man, we got to get there first. <laughs> you know, I mean, I can't tell you why, but we got to get there first. But um, I just think it's awesome. And I think it'll appeal to a lot of different people. And again, you know, I think there's something to be said about board games. I know a lot of people will be like, who plays board games anymore? But I personally love board games because to me, it's something fun you can do with your friends, your family. You know, it's it's wholesome. I don't know if you have these in uh, America, but over here, there's a, certainly a rise of board game cafes. Oh, wow. We could have something like that here. And I could have we have a lot of cat cafes in the United States oh, yeah. now with cats. <laughs> we have some of them as well. But um, board game cafes are wonderful. And yeah, I've been to a few of them myself and just met up with friends. Board games are wonderful in the modern age because yes. there's, a ch- there's a chance for you just to disconnect from your phone and all that kind of stuff and just be in a room with people and enjoy a moment. So I know some people won't want to turn their phone off, but right. you can do it where you just all leave your leave your phones at the door and just enjoy each other, being in each other's company yeah. and getting competitive or, or you know, messing with each other through the game and all that kind of yeah. stuff. It's a lot of fun. And I, I enjoy board game night with my friends. I like the idea that I could get this game and bring my side hobby into uh, a board game night yeah. and they're all going to enjoy it you don't have to have that prior knowledge but knowing that this game is steeped in the research and you could tell from the way we interviewed fritz there knowing that it's steeped in that research that they're going to learn so they may if they don't want to learn anything they don't have to they just play the yeah. game but if they come away from it and go oh man that program sounded cool i'm going to look that up yeah they can it. do and they may go oh that was amazing that you know n1 rocket or the Blue Gemini, whatever it, yeah. whatever it is, you know that that kind of stuff. The fact that it exists and the fact he's incorporated in the game, big fan, big fan of how that's happened. That's gonna be cool. Yeah, I have a feeling you're very good at games and trivia and things like that. Uh, I've noticed this from some of our <laughs> hipster events, and uh, yeah, I have a feeling you're gonna be landing the UK on the moon before everybody else. So, <laughs> like, we're gonna. I'm oh, just too competitive. That's it. Yeah, that's the issue. We're gonna be America's gonna be like what. They they were coming too. Like we had no idea they were even in the run. It we'll just be at the press conference. Like yeah, we messed up. We had no clue. So that would be that would be pretty funny because I know you're good at the games. Just don't like losing, right? <laughs> anyway, of course you can find out how to get involved with uh, with this game by checking out our show notes uh, and all the links to that he mentioned in the interview can be found there which is either on spaceandthingspodcast.com or by looking in the show description of this episode in your podcast provider uh, i'll also be posting all the usual content on our patreon page which is patreon.com forward slash space and things and maybe somehow if we could ah uh, if we could try and get some kind of online game going some um, amongst our patrons at some point that would be amazing but that's for another day uh, if you're in our patreon and you're interested in that kind of thing let me know. To find out what guests are coming up in the future and submit your questions, head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things. So, Emily, what's caught your eye in spaceflight since last week? I will keep this short, but a couple stories have caught my eye this week. Uh, the first story is that the Webb telescope has discovered methane and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of exoplanet K2, 18 Bravo, 18B. Um, that I want to emphasize that doesn't mean that life necessarily exists on that exoplanet, 
But according to NASA, it has the the potential to possess a hydrogen-rich atmosphere and a water-ocean-covered surface. So K218 Bravo orbits the cool dwarf star K218 in the habitable zone. They need to work on those names, don't they? They're not very catchy. I know. They need something like... (laughs) One of the, a Transformers kind of name, but lies 120 light years from Earth in the constellation Leo. So it's a little ways away. It's a little ways Whoa. out. But um, that's very, yeah, that's very fascinating to know that it may have a hydrogen rich atmosphere and it may have uh, an ocean very similar to Earth. But that doesn't, again, I want to state that doesn't mean that there's other, there's people living there. We We don't know that. Another interesting story that caught my eye this week was and this is from futurism.com, is something weird, and this is from their headline, is going on with the asteroid NASA smashed. It turns out that Diamorphos is consistently spinning slower around Didymos than it did prior to the DART test. NASA announced a few weeks after the collision that it slowed uh, the asteroid's orbit down a full half hour, but now it appears... um, uh, some observers in a in a I believe in a new scientist article have stated that it appears to just be continuing to slow down. Its period has been lowered by about 34 minutes now and it just it's continuing to go down, which is not expected. They thought it would go back up. That's very weird and that's obviously a story that I'm gonna try to keep uh, an eyeball on, but I just thought those were very fascinating. So Dave, what's caught your eye this week? Yeah, that story is fascinating. That That's one nuts. really is like, what? How does that work? Anyway, yeah, it, it has a lot of implications for possibly the future. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the big story I think this week, or a couple of a couple of big stories, Frank Rubio has surpassed Mark Vanderhey's record of three hundred and fifty-five days, three hours and forty-five minutes uh, to become the longest U.S. space traveler in one mission. He's due to return, he's currently on the ISS, he's due to return on September 27th, and that will be after 371 days in orbit. So, Frank Rubio becomes the American with the longest flight uh, after beating Mark Vanderhey's record he set last year, which I think is cool. Um, Virgin Flight Galactic 03 was successful over the weekend, so um, that's good to see. Yeah, Yeah. Be interesting to see when these don't become newsworthy anymore, but I still think they are. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I had no idea that was happening because they didn't really publicize that one a lot. I think they did. I just I just oh. think they're getting talked about less. You have a point. It's like the space shuttle missions. After a while, nobody publicized them. And until, you have to go looking for that. Yeah, exactly. After a while, nobody was putting them on TV. Because I, I remember as a kid, after a while, they just stopped televising all the stuff because it was like oh it's they're just doing this routinely now it's just part of our life so yeah it's probably that another successful flight which i think is 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 good to see but the story that i i find fascinating this week is that australia have uh announced that they're building a moon rover for that's going to go up with the artemis program and uh, they've asked for suggestions on what to call it and uh I just think it's crazy when people do this. Yes. Um, <laughs> some of the, I've seen some suggestions people have made and they're freaking terrible. So I'm not going to get into yeah. that. I just think it should be called mate because in Australia, everyone's <laughs> called mate. Good day, mate. You know, wh- yeah. Why not? That's not a bad suggestion. I've seen some ones that I'm like, this is downright insulting. Like, come on, stop making fun of the Aussies. Like, 
few of them that are like, oh, is it going to be upside down? Like, stop it. Stop <laughs> it. That's messed up. But yeah, I saw that and I was like, that is really cool. Seriously, though, that's really cool. Um, we still need to do an episode on this. I th- Australia has an incredible space heritage. I mean, it goes way far back. It's not just, you know, oh, they're they're just starting. It seems like they're just starting. But really, I mean, it goes back probably to the 50s or so. So yeah, they the Australians really have an incredible sort of background in space history. And, and I think it's really cool they're going to have a spacecraft of their own going to the moon. That's going to be awesome. Absolutely. So I have one other thing I would like to talk about, and that's an event that's happening in the UK. Uh, it's called Rise Together, the Solutions Summit. And this is happening in my home county in Oxfordshire, which is amazing. And uh, it's a brand new European Space Agency conference centre at UK Space Gateway in the Harwell campus in Oxfordshire. Uh, And our friend Christina Corp is producing this full day event. It's from uh, 10 till 5 and then some drinks reception afterwards. And it's trying to inspire inclusivity in the UK space industry. Uh, So... uh, some of our friends, Nicole Stott will be there. Suzanne uh, Kilrain will be there, which is cool. Yep. It's free as well. So if anyone is around on the 11th of October, which is when it's happening, uh, come along. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. Uh, hopefully meet some of our listeners if you're there. As always, I will put the links to all the things we've discussed in the show notes. Never miss an episode. Make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast platform. And don't forget to leave a review. This is Space and Things. All right, thanks for joining us this week. I'm not around next week, but we do have an episode recorded and ready for, to go. So uh, there'll be no What Caught Our Eye section next week, I'm afraid, but we've still got an episode. Please consider sharing this podcast with your friends. We've got a special offer this week. Uh, if you share the podcast with one extra person, then we'll give you a voucher to listen to one of our old episodes whenever you like. Yes, and a big thank you once again uh, to our... <laughs> wow, is that a deal? <laughs> Uh, I just it just sank in. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm a bit slow. A big I'm thank trying. You. All right, it's called marketing. I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, my brain just like got it just a little late. A big thank you. Uh, it's been a it's been a tough month. A big thank you once again to our Patreon subscribers. We just did our Patreon prize draw this month, so be sure to log on to see if you've won. And if you're not a member, please consider heading on over. Do patreon.com space and thing slash space and things to sign up. Uh, I don't want to harp too much on marketing, but we want to continue beyond 200 episodes. We'd really love to. And if we get to 100 Patreon members, that'll make it possible for us. So please, you know, if you're so inclined, if you're interested, please sign up. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you me. You've been listening to the Space and Things podcast.